go to their Sunday school classes or their, the, where, where they, yeah, you know the drill. If you'd like to, or you can stay in here and, and hang out with us. We're okay with that. Um, quick reminder to uh, remember to pray for, for each other during the, the holiday times. Um, you know, for some families, it's just a, a time of wonderful fellowship. And for other people, sometimes these are the hardest times of the year when Thanksgiving and Christmas are all around. So, so pray for each other. If you know there's somebody out there in the body that's maybe doesn't have a place to go, open your home. You know, we're, we're really good about this. But, you know, be, be mindful. Be thinking about uh, the people maybe that aren't... Uh, you know, as thankful this year because of circumstances and that kind of thing. So, and, and also in, in by way of thanks, I know David uh, did this last week, but I, I have to do it too. Uh, you know, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, which is probably the most awkward month there is for pastors because you don't, you know, it's like, hey, you know, s- stop. But then you're like, okay, this is nice. <laughs> it's both of those things, but um, we're just blown away. Uh, it's just amazing. Uh, all the cards, all the gifts, all the love, all the support. Uh, we just can't thank you enough. We love what we do, but to have a little bit of you know extra fuel in our tanks um, because of the, all the different ways that you guys um, just blessed us, it, it, me- it means a lot. So thank you so much. Okay, Matthew is where we're going to be this morning. So at the door, if you're, if you're not familiar with what we do here, uh, the pastors rotate. We go through a book, and we've been in Matthew. And so wherever the last guy leaves off, that you know you pick up right there where he left off, and you know we don't really get a, a say in it. And every once in a while, you, you, you get lucky, and you come across one of those passages that everybody really likes. And so this morning, and I just happened to land in one of those. So we're going to talk about two of your favorite things this morning, death and taxes. So... <laughs> I know, right? It's just, it's just the way it worked out. Uh, we're, we're in uh, actually Matthew 17, if, if I didn't tell you where to go. Um, these two passages actually don't really go together. We've got uh, Jesus predicting his death, followed by the account of Jesus and Peter paying their taxes. But I think we're going to see a common theme of Jesus' provision for us as we, as we go through this. When I think about provision, um, you know, I've been a Christian for a, a very long time now. And I've seen God's faithful provision in my life time and time and time again. And I wish I could say I no longer worried about his, his providing for me. I wish I could just come up and say that, but, but I'd be lying to you. I still sadly struggle to, to see, you know, how's God going to meet my needs? How's he going to, is he going to do this? Is he not? What's going to go on? And maybe you can relate to that too. And here's the, the interesting thing is I don't doubt God's ability to do this. Uh, he can do anything. God can do anything. I know that. What I doubt is why he would want to do it for me. And maybe you can relate to that too. Why would he want to do this for somebody who's unfaithful and unloving and uncommitted and unreliable? Because when I think about the way we do things, if somebody treated me like that, I wouldn't want to help them or meet their needs. But our God's not like that. He's so good. He's so loving and patient and merciful and long-suffering our God is faithful, even when we're not. So hopefully this morning, we'll have a better understanding of not only the fact that he is faithful, he's able to provide for all of our needs, but that he actually wants to as well. So Matthew 17, starting in verse 22, we read this. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when they came into the house, or when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? 
And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. So this is the passage. We, we start out by seeing Jesus, you know, he's repeatedly been telling his disciples about his coming death. He's trying to prepare them. And it kind of reminds me of when, when we had little kids and we would be at a, an event or a friend's house and they were playing and having a good time. We thought this would be a good strategy to, to, to you know, like 30 minutes before we left, go up and say, hey guys, 30 minutes and we're, we're going to be packing up and going. And then maybe in 15 minutes, we'd go, hey guys, 15 minutes. And then give them a five minute warning, hoping that it would soften the blow. I, I think this is what Jesus is doing because he keeps bringing this up to, to the disciples. But they cannot accept this idea at all. Um, how is it possible that their promised conquering king is about to be delivered into the hands of dangerous men who are going to put him to death? How can that be? Surely Jesus could find a way to turn the tables on them and, and put them to death, right? He could think about everything they've watched Jesus do up to this point. Is there anything he can't do? And, and yet they're, they're struggling to understand how he can't stop this from happening. And this is the part that so many people seem to miss, right? Nothing ever happened to Jesus that he didn't allow to happen to him, right? Even Jesus said at one point that, you know, he had 12 legions of angels at his disposal, ready, willing, and able to just come and, and do business if he needed them. And if you don't know math well, uh, that's 144,000 angels. And if you think about it, what, what, do people, what happens when a person sees one angel? Abject fear is what happens. Imagine 144,000 coming at you, right? Jesus is not a helpless victim. He, he isn't concerned about losing. This was God's plan, and it's literally what he signed up for when he took on human flesh. So there are two passages in the book of Acts that I love that, that really kind of speak about the sovereignty of God and all that happened to Jesus. And one of them is in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was giving his sermon. He tells those listening that Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Exactly what Jesus is saying is going to happen. That's a fact. And then he says this, and that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Both of those things are true. <laughs> I don't know how that works. And in Acts 4, we get more of this. Um, in, in verse 26, we hear something similar about what happened to Jesus when it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So you've got this mass of people that are all against him. They're all set to try to take him down. To do what? Well, in verse 28, it says, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. <laughs> so it's just cool. Is God in control? You bet he is. These people were not threats to Jesus. They were pawns in the hand of a mighty God, right? So doesn't change the fact that the disciples were greatly distressed because of this news. And once again, they, they missed the most important part of Jesus's plan. He said, and on the third day, I will be raised again. Now, the resurrection, as we know, changes everything. But in fairness to them, it's no wonder that they didn't hear that part because humanly speaking, this isn't possible, right? One does not simply rise from the dead. This is something they've not seen. They don't know that this can happen. And this is why what Jesus did is so incredibly astounding. His death, resurrection, 
these things were so mind-blowingly out of the ordinary, so impactful in the story of history that we actually divide the way we measure time based on before Jesus and after Jesus. This is amazing to think about, right? There's been a lot of people that have lived pretty amazing lives and even died important deaths. None of them split time in two. Jesus did. And that's because he is risen, right? This doesn't, this doesn't happen. And this is why we believe that everything Jesus claimed to be and everything he claimed to do is true, including a time when he will return. He is coming back just as he said he would. He's coming back to, to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back to rescue his, us as well, but he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready to stand before your king when he comes? Your Lord? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at some point. That's non-negotiable. He has made every provision for you to be ready today because he has lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and then he credited it to you. He's willing to do that. He went to the cross to suffer the death that you deserved to be your substitute, to pay your penalty. And then he came back to life three days after he was buried, proving that he had conquered sin and death for us and proving that he is Lord. He's made every provision If you believe that and are willing to turn away from everything else and confess that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. And that's the best news that that we have. Now, verse 24 moves forward into the narrative. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, that's just a funny saying to me. Every time I hear that, I think of a band. Like if if you've been looking for a band name and you, you haven't come up with one yet, the collectors of the two drachma tax is probably available and it sounds pretty good, so... Anyway, they come up to Peter and they say, does your, does your uh, teacher not pay the tax? This was Peter's home and, and Jesus had now made it his home as well. And you know, it's got to be a great town when you're greeted by tax collectors when you get there, right? It's like, what kind of, ta- you know, they should have had like a convention and visitors bureau meeting and be like, we got to think of a different way to attract visitors. This isn't good. Anyway, these guys were um, responsible to collect a Jewish temple tax of a half a shekel. And that's equivalent to about two to three days wages. So five, 600 bucks, something like that. Now, every law-abiding Jewish man over the age of 20 was to pay this annual tax that went to support all that went on at the temple. And, and you know, if, if you're familiar with what went on at the temple, every day there was a lot going on. So it would have been, you know, a lot to keep up with. So the tax collectors approach Peter and say, does your teacher not pay the tax? They ask it in the negative, almost like they're assuming he's not going to. And this might be because, you know, Jesus had already gained kind of a reputation of making the religious leaders' lives very hard, and may, maybe they thought, oh, he's not, he's gonna, he's not gonna play ball, he's gonna cause trouble. Or it might be because they knew he was a rabbi. They call him teacher, which is another name for rabbi. Rabbis could exempt themselves from this tax. And in fact, this tax was pretty easy to get out of, so a lot of people found ways to get out of it, which, you know, you're like, how do you do that? Well, this only applied to the temple tax. But um, the, the Sadducees just said, we don't believe in it. We're not paying it. We don't believe in it. That's pretty cool. I wish I could do that with our government, but that doesn't work, I don't think. Uh, the Essenes said, we, we, we think it's a good idea, but only once in a lifetime, and that's it. So they wouldn't pay it annually, like one and done. So they were kind of used to this type of thing. The funny thing here is that, that Peter doesn't check with Jesus. He just says, yep, he'll pay it. Yeah, he'll do it. And uh, I don't know, to me that's funny because Peter just does this this kind of stuff. But Jesus had either overheard this conversation or he just knew it because he's God. And so he questions Peter about it when, when, they, when Peter comes back to the house. In verse 25, it says, when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And 
Peter apparently got the answer right. And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So can you imagine a king going up to his kids and saying, hey, I'm going to need you to come up with some money uh, to pay taxes for, for our kingdom, you know, my kingdom, I'm going to need some money from you. Kings don't make their kids pay taxes, right? Fathers don't make their children pay taxes in general. Well, Jesus just happens to be the son of the most high king, correct? This makes him about as exempt as anyone can be exempt. So it's kind of ridiculous and even insulting to ask Jesus to pay this tax. And at this point, you could picture Peter going, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, maybe I should have asked before I, hey, I just told him you were going to pay like two to three days wages. Sorry about that. But that's what he does. Jesus tells Peter the sons are free. This is a pretty amazing statement. Those who are part of the royal household are exempt, which is amazing news if you're a Christian today. If you've been united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, you've been fully adopted as a son or daughter and are now also exempt. As part of God's family, we are free. Right? Free people don't have to do things that other people have to do. And, and the Bible, just so you know, I know we're talking about the temple tax, but, but it says if the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. This is our, our condition. We are citizens of God's kingdom, which, which means we have this kind of a diplomatic immunity. And, and if you know what that is, that's, that's a status granted to a diplomat that exempts them from the laws of a foreign jurisdiction. And this is because for the believer, Jesus has fulfilled every aspect of the law for us so that we're not under its obligation anymore. And I know this can sound weird to, to people, so I'm just going to give you a verse that will help you see this. Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So I don't have to pay a temple tax. I don't have to measure up or perform to gain approval or right standing from God. Jesus gives me that. Now, for everyone who just heard me say that it doesn't matter what we do, hold on a minute. This is one of the big reasons people have such a hard time when people preach grace, when people preach a free gift of grace. It, it sounds like if God has forgiven us from all of our sins and declared us to be righteous, then it sounds like we just have license to do whatever we want, right? We have a license to sin. It's like we have a get-out-of-jail-free card. Is that what you're telling me? You can just do whatever you want and it's okay? People have actually gotten mad at me and rebuked me for teaching grace. I had a guy one time say, if you tell people that Jesus has done all the work in making you righteous, they're going to think holiness doesn't matter. I understand the logic in that. I, I do. I, I see the progression, but I, in, in my opinion, it couldn't be further from the truth. So hear me out. <laughs> Before coming to Christ, I did whatever I wanted. I didn't really give it much thought. I wasn't convicted and I wasn't conflicted. But all of that changed when the Holy Spirit took up residency in me. Holiness suddenly became important to me. I don't know why, but it did. And sin, my sin began to disgust me. The things that were coming out of my mouth, the things that I was doing, something changed, something shifted. And this should be true for anyone that the Holy Spirit lives inside. And yet there are people that say they're Christians, but they don't seem to be bothered at all by sin in the world or in their lives. They don't appear to fight or struggle with their sin. And it is a fight and a struggle. Don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean we never sin. It just means that we have a different view of it. They don't seem to desire holiness. Well, what does that mean if that's the case? It might mean that they're claiming to be something that they really aren't. So if I told you guys I was a brain surgeon, you might go along with it for a minute, right? A while. But after about a week of hanging out with me, you'd be like, you know, 
Something's not adding up. Something isn't adding up here. I don't, I don't think this guy's telling the truth. Here's what I know to be true. If God's spirit lives in you, sin will be uncomfortable. Right? Doesn't mean you won't sin, but it's not going to sit well with you. And if you have a difficult time acknowledging your sin, agreeing that sin is an issue, consider this verse. 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out a liar and his word is not in us. Now, confession is an interesting thing. When we think about confession, sometimes we think about like if you get caught doing something, then you just say, yeah, I did it, I admit it. Like, but you don't do it unless you get caught kind of thing. That's, that, that, that's a form of confession maybe. But confession biblically means agreeing with God. You're, you're saying, I agree that this is sin. Your word says this is sin, I agree with you. And it's how God's word defines sin, not how the world defines it or anything. It's how his word defines it. So when, when this happens, you don't justify your sin, you don't excuse your sin, you don't ignore your sin, you, you deal with it. If you say what you're doing is not sin, according to this, it says you're calling God a liar. <laughs> so that would be the conversation would go like this. Hey, this is sin. No, it's not. Yeah, it, this, is, this is sin. It really is. Well, agree to disagree. <laughs> it's like you don't get to do that with God. If, if he calls it sin, it, it's sin. So if you, if you continually disagree with what God's word says in regards to this, something's not adding up. And unfortunately, this, this describes far too many Christians that I see. So yes, we are free in Christ, but that does not up to a, uh, doesn't add up to a desire to sin more. It should create a desire to sin less. So 1 Corinthians 10, 23 is an interesting verse. It says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, right? So this means I, I can, but why would I? I just, uh, I was talking to a friend uh, a couple days ago. This is kind of a gross analogy, but it works, so you're welcome. Um, he was talking about how he had developed an allergy to cheese. This was something he loved and consumed regularly. Uh, he, he was talking about how he would just take a spoon and eat feta right out of the container. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a guy that loves cheese. But one day, something just drastically changed. And, and now, every time he ate cheese, I'll just say it didn't agree with him. Even though in his mind he still craved it, he still wants it, he, he, want, he thinks he would enjoy it if he, ha- if he has it, every time he has it, the same thing happens. It, it doesn't sit well with him. And, and this is how sin is for the Christian. It might sound appealing, but it never is. It, it makes me sick. And, I, and I'm still dumb enough to think maybe this time it'll be appealing. Maybe this time it'll be satisfying. And every time it brings nothing but grief to God and nothing but sorrow and regret and dissatisfaction to me every time. And what about how it affects the people around us? This is the other thing we have to think of because that verse that I just read in 1 Corinthians 10, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. It goes on to say, let no one seek his own good, but also the good of his neighbor. So you got to think about how if we claim to be a follower of Christ and then we live like a child of the devil, what are we doing so not only are you going to hate your sin if, if God's spirit is in you, you're going to hate when you grieve God. You're also going to hate the thought of people being separated from God for eternity. You're going to care about those that are perishing around you. And that's going to change the way you talk, the way you live, the things you, you, know, the, the things you do, how you treat people. All of that's going to change. All of that matters. And we see this demonstrated in what Jesus does in this passage because we see that Jesus pays this tax even though he was tax exempt, right? He was free not to pay, but he did it anyway. 
I mean, who just pays taxes when they don't have to? Jesus did. And we're going to get to the reason for this in a minute. But, but first, I want to make a quick ob- observation because I know how much most of us feel about paying taxes. We don't like to pay taxes partly because we, we know the government takes more than their share and, uh, and they waste a lot of it. And the other reason we don't generally like to pay, you know, a lot of us, it, it, our tax money seems to go to things that we don't agree with, that we think are morally wrong. And so these things combined make it to where we try to find loopholes. We try to find ways out of, of doing this. This is what I want you to consider. Think about everything that was going on in the temple at this time. Um, was Jesus all for it? No, he, he actually went into the temple more than once, turned the tables over and said, you guys are making my father's house a den of robbers. They were using God's name as a means of gain. They were using God as bait to get money from people. It doesn't get much more disgusting than that. And that's what was happening in the temple. And yet, he paid the tax. It's interesting, isn't it? Why not protest? Why not boycott? Why not make a stand? You know, there are going to be times as a Christian when you have to make a decision about where your money goes. And sometimes you're going to say, I'm going to go with what God wants and not what man wants here. And you might have to pay the consequences for it. But in general, there's a verse that kind of uh, helps me, gives me a little comfort around tax time when I'm, when I'm sending that check out. Um, and it's Romans 13. And verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And it goes on to talk about the judgment is like if, if, if you know, rulers, if you're trying to fight against the system, they're going to get on your case and that kind of thing. And then it goes on in verse 6 to say, because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that everybody in authority is godly. In fact, it's hard to picture, there's not many that are, but it does mean that God has placed them there for his purposes and to help restrain evil. So in other words, there are going to be times when we simply have to trust God and let him worry about the details. And learning to do this will cause a lot of your stress to go away. So I would just encourage you, stop worrying about them. We do that so much. We're always worried about them. What are they doing? What's going on out there? Stop worrying about them. Stop giving them so much credit. God's in control. He's got it, right? He's got, take comfort in knowing that every one of those people will stand before him one day and give an account. They will. They'll have to answer to him. They're not getting away with anything. He's paying attention. Now, I think we can all agree paying taxes stinks and we would rather keep our money. But as bad as government can be, you know what's worse? (laughs) No government at all. I mean, look at what happens. We get little glimpses occasionally of it. And it's absolute chaos when when you take away that restraining of government. So pray for your government. Vote for people that hold the the values that that are important to you. And then trust God with the outcome. But back to why Jesus paid the tax when he didn't have to. He gives Peter the reason in verse 27. He said, the sons are free, however, not to give offense to them, pay the tax. So Jesus is basically saying, hey, rather than create a big scene, let's not offend, let's just do this. Now, we're living in a time, I don't know if you guys have noticed, where people are offended about anything and everything. Everybody's offended about something. I probably offended you already this morning. That's just the way it works. Everybody gets offended. Does this, is Jesus saying, hey, let's make sure we never offend anybody? 
Does that sound like Jesus at all? <laughs> he offended a lot of people. He kind of specialized in offending people sometimes even. Um, so, you know, it, it shouldn't be our goal, but, but in fact, as Christians, when we preach the gospel, it's an offensive message, correct? If you tell somebody that their sin has separated them from a holy God, and that if they don't repent and believe and bow their knee before him, that they're going to eternity without him or eternity in hell, that's a pretty offensive message. We don't need to pile on to that, right? We don't need to add our own stuff into that. So if we can find a way to avoid unnecessary offenses and obstacles so that we can focus on preaching the message that saves, we will do well. (laughs) The enemy loves to distract us from the real mission and get us sidetracked with the other stuff. And it's so easy for me to get sidetracked with the other stuff. So as Christians, it's not only okay for us sometimes to turn the other cheek, as Jesus told us, maybe it's the best thing we can do sometimes to win somebody to Christ. So this tax, like I said, was not compulsory. They had every right not to pay it, and yet they did. And so it just, it, it, again, it goes to this idea of rights. Um, you know, again, probably gonna step on toes, that's okay. We're pretty big on our rights in America right now correct? I Don't get me wrong. I love the rights I have. I love them. I love every one of them. I don't want them to go away. I hope they stay forever. But do you know that they could go away? I, I think we've had them for so long that we think that they're God-given rights. And, and maybe we're thinking about that wrong. If you really think about what rights we're guaranteed as Christians, it's, it's not a, I don't even know if there's one on the list, you know, you have the right to suffer, <laughs> you have the right, right to deny yourself and follow me. I mean, these are the things that come to mind. If Christians have God-given rights, the kind of things we think of as rights, we should get on the phone right now and call China and North Korea and Iran and say, hey, you guys, you got this all wrong. You, you didn't realize these guys have rights. You know, they're guaranteed rights as Christians. They, they, would, <laughs> they would look at us crazy. So again, my point is, as American Christians, we have both rights and freedoms that are amazing, amazing things to have. The question is, what are we doing with them? To whom much is given, much is expected. And we've got these these rights that, you know, ask yourself the question, is what I'm doing going to further my opportunity to share the gospel, or is it going to diminish my opportunity? Is it going to enhance my testimony as an ambassador of Christ, as a representative of him, or is it going to ruin it? It's okay for us to set our rights aside for the sake of somebody else. In fact, there's a pretty good example of somebody who did that for us. His name is Jesus. He set aside, and he had God rights, not like what we have. He had actually the, the, the greatest rights you can have, and he said, I'm willing to set those aside for you. That's amazing, and he's our example. So there's going to be times when we, we may have to make a choice about that, but I want you to think about what it says to others when we willingly surrender, surrender our privileges for, for the sake of, of them because we care about them, because we love them. It's a huge statement. Um, so just something to consider that we, we can take away from this passage. Another thing we see in this passage that I love is, is how easily Jesus can provide for our needs. And this includes two of the things that weigh on us the most, death and taxes. Um, we'll talk about the taxes first. A day's wage, or three days wages, I'm sorry, it's a lot. Most of us don't have five or six hundred bucks just, you know, ready to hand out to somebody that needs it. Um, and it seems reasonable to think that Jesus, who is God, would have, would have had this, right? He just would have pulled out a big wad of cash and said, here you go, Peter, you know, go take care of this, right? That's how I would have done it if I, if I came. The Son of Man didn't even have a place to lay his head. And I would have done that differently if it was me. <laughs> I would have been like, I've got a lot of places. I've got three or four places, really nice. And I would have, you know, Jesus came so humbly he didn't even have a shekel, it appears, to his name. 
Just think about that for a second. God in the flesh comes and he doesn't even have a shekel. <laughs> Just blows my mind. But was that a problem for him? No, not even for a second. Um, he knows where to get it. <laughs> he, knows, he knows who to rely on. He has a plan. So he goes and tells Peter this. Kind of comical to me, actually. Go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that to the tax man and, and cover, cover the debt. Imagine Peter hearing this. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that, that's going to work. That happens all the time. Peter's a fisherman. He, he knows, you know, when Jesus says, go to the sea, Peter's like, yep, okay, got that. Cast a hook, sure, yep, done that lots of times. It's like, there's no way this is going to work. You know, maybe if I throw a few nets out there and pull in hundreds and thousands, maybe. But you just don't generally find fish with coins in their mouths, right? You know, and, and again, the exact amount, the exact Jewish coin, it was a very specific coin that's in the Roman world of coins. You know, this is, this is the one you find that just happens to be the right amount to pay the debt. Um, this pretty much tells us again who Jesus is. He's God. Nobody else can orchestrate this, know this. Nobody can. But here's the cool thing. I mean, how many times have you guys had a financial burden and you think, how in the world is this going to, you know, where's the money going to come from? How's this going to get taken care of? This is what, you know, how, how in the world is God going to meet my needs? He doesn't have a problem meeting needs. <laughs> is anything too hard for God? No, of course not. But this goes back to my earlier predicament that I mentioned to you guys. I know God is capable of doing anything, but why would he want to do it for me? Keeping in mind that his provision is far more than just financial or meeting our temporal, you know, temporal physical needs. It includes our, our mental health, our, our emotional needs, our relational needs, and of course our spiritual needs. Why is he willing to meet these needs for us? And the answer we find in probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. You guys can say it with me. You know, we just overlook it. It's right there. For God so loved the world. And you can put your name in there. Sometimes I do just to remind myself, for God so loved Brent, you know, for God so loved you, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He loves you. Romans 8.31 says this, and we know the first part. What should we say to these things then? If God is for us, who can be against us? But listen to the next part. This is money. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So th this is the idea. If God was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice of going to the cross to pay our debt sin, you think he's going to say, I'm not covering your electric bill. Oh, food and shelter and clothing, you're on your own there, buddy. I mean, that's silly, isn't it, to think about. He was willing to do that. What's he not willing to do for those? If that doesn't tell you how much he loves you, that he sent his son, nothing else will. God loved you enough to send his beloved son to the cross. And he did that knowing exactly who you were. <laughs> you can't miss this part either because you've got to realize that. He, he loves you past you, present you, and future you. He knows you, and he still loves you, which is pretty mind-blowing if you're me. <laughs> it's like, this is incredible. God has determined to set his love upon us. And then you would say, if you're me, yeah, but what if he changes his mind? What if he tires of me? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. Romans 8, 35 gives us the answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37 goes on, knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's an exhaustive list. I mean, he starts making stuff like height or depth. I mean, he's trying to say everything out there. There's nothing out there that can separate us. And so that means nothing can change God's mind about you. You are stuck with him. Praise God for that. In this passage that we look at today, we see clearly that Jesus paid it all, right? He's going to take care of you. I love how he took care of Peter's tax debt without hesitation. Peter didn't even really have to ask. Jesus knew he had the need and he just met it. And he probably didn't have three days wages at that moment because he hasn't been fishing. He's been, he's been touring the land with Jesus. So this is a big deal. Jesus is also willing to, to take care of your debts. He is the ultimate debt payer. And there's this beautiful picture in the story of, you know, this, this temple tax that, that no longer is, is, is needed. And that's because if you know what that tax was for, if you go back to Exodus, you can see why they instituted the tax. Um, it was kind of for the ongoing funding of the sacrificial system. It covered the salaries of the priest and their attire and all the tools they needed. It covered the animals, the wood, the candles, the flour, the oil. I mean, there was so much stuff, you know, and, and it covered all of that. Um, and the reason they had to pay that tax was to keep the atonement system going. This was a way to atone for, you know, the, the sins. Jesus has removed the need for that tax once and for all. And not only the need for the tax, but the need for the temple, the need for the priest, the need for the sacrifice. I mean, all of these things we find in him for us. He is our priest that intercedes and mediates between us and God. He is our sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. He is our temple where we can go to be cleansed and we can go to be in the presence of God and we can go to find sanctuary. How wonderful is Jesus? And all of this means the bottom line for you and me as Christians is this, death and taxes ain't got nothing on us anymore. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for, for this passage and, and for the provision of Christ, Lord. We thank you that not only are you able to provide for your children, but you want to that you've adopted us into your family and you've made us heirs is an amazing thing, Lord. Thank you that we are loved. We know it's not because of us. There's nothing loving, lovable in us, but it's because of Christ in us. Thank you for, uh, for giving us your son. Thank you for giving us a relationship with you. Help us, Lord, not to squander it. We've been given so much, so much, Lord. Help us to take this message that we have and, and this time that we have and use it all for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.